end of the sentence is not the end of the story. You learn something new about someone, your perception of them changes. A lot of people really struggle with getting back on their feet with criminal records. These records taunt them. We don't want to make it harder for people to find employment, to find housing. Um, you know, if we want to lower recidivism rates, these are the kinds of reforms that we need to be looking at. From the WNET Group in New York, hi, I'm Tom Stewart, and welcome to WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who create our content. Since 2014, Chasing the Dream, Poverty and Opportunity in America has been one of the WNET Group's major multi-platform initiatives, exploring the human stories of poverty and showcasing promising solutions. The latest work in the project is the five-part digital series and documentary film, The Power of a Pardon, produced and directed by today's guest, award-winning independent documentary filmmaker, Jamila Paxima. Jamila, welcome to WNET Up Next. Thank you, so happy to be here. In a very general way, The Power of a Pardon seems to be the story of the newly reformed Pennsylvania pardon process and tells us what a pardon can mean to someone with a criminal record. But having said that, it's said often in the program, and it really seems to be about the power of second chances. We in Pennsylvania spend billions of dollars on incarceration, but we spend so precious little on redemption. And, and I think that is a grossly mismatched uh, and aligned priority, quite frankly. That's Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. I was horrified at how arbitrary and random some of these sentencings are. Right now we hear so much about criminal justice reform, but we often don't hear about the pardon process and the clemency process, which also could use a vast overhaul in many states, and particularly Pennsylvania had a really tough history of it. That's why we ended up reporting from here in Pennsylvania and found some really interesting stories because things are shaking up in Pennsylvania. I was just surprised by the pervasiveness of having a criminal record in this country. And you've come up with the statistic that one in three Americans has a criminal record. I will tell you, the one caveat with that is one in three adult Americans has a criminal record. It's a really shocking number. That is a lot of us. Most of these crimes happen when people are young, before their mid-20s. And then this follows you for the rest of your life if you don't have the ability to clean up your record after you've served your time or paid your penalties. And for some people, it completely changes the future of their life. One of the phrases that's used in your program is that the sentence is not the end. Right. The end of the sentence is not the end of the story. And I have to give credit to Eugenia Harvey for coming up with that. That's not mine. And how did you come to get involved in making this film? I'm actually now a Pennsylvanian and uh, live here. And I heard about this gentleman named Brandon Flood, who recently was appointed to be the secretary of the Pardons Board of Pennsylvania. And when I learned about his story, I have been itching and itching to find a way to tell it because Brandon Flood 
is a formerly convicted felon. He spent nine years in and out of the Pennsylvania prison system. And he cleaned up his act. He started getting very involved in politics. But because of his criminal record, he was not allowed to run for any kind of office. I had that impairment against me because of my two felony convictions. My sole intent for the pardon was to be able to lawfully hold office, uh, but in particular, uh, the office of mayor in Harrisburg. When our governor, Wolf, was about to appoint him to the head of diversity and inclusion, but I don't think he would have like a lot of authority, but doing a lot of consulting. At that time, his lieutenant governor, John Fetterman, heard about this and heard Brandon's story and said, I actually think Brandon should be the secretary of the pardon parole board. And it was within three weeks of receiving his pardon, he was appointed to this job, overseer of the pardons board. Was there always a pardons board? Yes, there's always been a pardons board. It has actually been much larger in the past in Pennsylvania, and they've streamlined it down to five individuals. Who makes the ultimate decision on whether or not you receive the pardon? In Pennsylvania, it is the governor, Tom Wolf, who has the final say. But depending on the crime, they need a, either a majority vote or a unanimous vote. For clemencies and larger cases, that's generally where you need a unanimous mm -hmm. vote. In Brandon's case, he did have to wait. And one of the issues around the way pardons have run in Pennsylvania is it just takes, it seems to take forever to get a pardon, at least minimum three years in the mm. past until Brandon got into office and decided, along with the lieutenant governor who kind of oversees him, that they were going to do some overhauling of the Pennsylvania pardon process. This might be a good time for me to ask you about the sentencing project, people who have helped move the pardon process along. The Sentencing Project actually monitors sentencing all around the United States. They're based out of Washington, D.C. I really relied on them as sort of experts and benchmarking of what works and what doesn't work. Some people wouldn't say Pennsylvania is completely reformed yet because we have very, very high incarceration rates, some of the highest in the country. Our city of Philadelphia is notorious for throwing so many people in prison without really good cases. And now they're reversing many of them as if you're following any of the, the story of the, the Philly DA's office right now. Mm -hmm. um, Larry Krasner is busy cleaning up decades of really bad criminal cases that were based on not a lot of facts and corrupt policing and so forth. So there's been, we have you know, a big black eye here when it comes to incarceration. I think what stood out for me is just some of the ways that they're going about it are a little unconventional and it seems to be moving fairly rapidly. And that, I think it's because you have a very progressive Lieutenant Governor and Lieutenant Governor Fetterman. Brandon and I share a common goal that we want to leave the best performing, revolutionized pardons and commutation process behind. Everyone deserves justice. And Governor Wolf himself, while he is approving these, he hasn't actually been moving quick enough for a lot of people. Like the, the process is still slogging and slow. But the Lieutenant Governor seems to be the driving force. Yes, absolutely. 
in your film, we see the board at work making these decisions, and it's very exciting to watch and very suspenseful. And I was wondering how you were allowed to actually put that on film. This ended up being a gift of COVID-19. There are very few gifts of COVID-19, but it turns out that normally under regular circumstances, folks have to go to the pardon board to plead their case. Mm-hmm. This happens in Pennsylvania four times a year. If, if your application is approved and you can come before the board, it's a long process. Some people bring lawyers, they bring their family, it's emotional. Some people have to travel from other states because they, they committed their crimes like 20, 30 years ago and there's expenses that come with it. But because of COVID-19, everything ended up moving onto the Zoom platform. And so did the pardon process for Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I don't know what other states have done, but this ended up being an amazing storytelling vehicle for us because now we could document it in a very contracted amount of time. And there was so much drama. You have the buildup and preparing for your testimony and then your support people who come to be with you when you're pleading your case. And then you have to wait at least, I think it's 48 hours before you find out what the vote is going to be based on the board. And then after that, if the board says yes or no, then you have to wait for the governor to sign the pardon. And that can, that actually for some people took months. So there were a lot of key turning points in people's stories that we could follow. But when that vote is taken, it's such a victory that's felt by everybody you speak of. I was so surprised at how emotional it was. And when the vote is taken, it's interesting. Most of the board doesn't actually show the people who are listening to Mm. the decision. But because we were filming and we had identified people in advance who were willing to let us follow their cases, we were able to get these very emotional reactions. And it just, it was coincidental But every single person who I had contact with who had agreed to participate ended up with some positive outcome. And so that also was really remarkable to see. Tell us some of your experiences in filming the subjects. It seems like you were able to establish a very intimate relationship with them as you were filming because they are all so revealing in the way they appear on camera. What I found so interesting about the characters and people I met is people who apply for a pardon generally are willing to go out there and put themselves out there. So they've worked really hard to live a straight life after they've served their time for their crime. Most people had waited an exceptionally long time. I think it's somewhere between eight to 10 years you can apply after you've you've served your time. And most had waited more than 20 years to actually apply and to clean up their records. So a lot was at stake. And I think as they prepare, they realize I have really lost so much. This would mean I could have done so many more things with my life if I had cleaned up my record. There's also a lot of shame in doing this publicly. Mm -hmm. You now have to go back and admit For example, there's one woman, her name is Jerry, and she ended up on the streets doing drugs in prostitution and went down this awful path of nine years 
in and out of prison, doing petty crimes to feed her drug habit. She was really apprehensive initially to even talk about any of that. She was ashamed to show me the life that she had before because she's worked so hard to be somebody new today. But she has to face that in order to clean her record up. I think out of many of the people that I told stories of, hers really touched me because here she is now in her 60s and now she's finally about to start her own business yes. and do all kinds of things that she didn't allow herself to do. She she walked out of prison, went into like a halfway house program and took the first job she could in a warehouse because nobody would trust her because she had committed a burglary. She did have one very strong advocate that you show, a woman who was very much her champion who helped her along. There's a woman who she used to work with who remained her friend through this entire journey, through prison, afterwards, and continued to champion her, and is the one who really kept pushing for her to go and clean her record up so that she could actually have the business that she wanted to have. My passion is people. So in order to work with people, I had to get my record clean. Her dream was to have a home care company. Mm-hmm. And she has a heart for elderly people. And so through this process, there was a lot at stake. That was like a big dream that she was ready and hoping would come true. And then to sit in front of the board and it moved so quickly. Her story is really interesting. I waited 19 years for two minutes and 10 seconds. Another one of your subjects relates to immigration reform in terms of getting a pardon. Could you talk about Ricky? Sure. So Ricky was a young man who, at the age of six, was a refugee from Cambodia. And his whole family was resettled into the United States. And then as a young, about 20-year-old guy, he was in Philadelphia And he went to help a friend of his go cash a paycheck. And he didn't realize that this young man had a gun on him. And I think he knew that he was in a gang, but Ricky wasn't in the gang. And in that moment, they were both in the car, something happened and and Ricky was driving and this guy fired off his gun. And suddenly he's an accomplice in a crime. Mm. Now, Ricky had not gotten his green card yet. He came here from living in a refugee camp. His family is completely self-made. They know nothing about the law. And he's being told that he will have this really long sentence and somebody offers him a plea deal if he confesses to a second crime and they will reduce his sentence. And so he then confesses to two crimes. (laughs) Right, yeah. And he didn't know how to get proper legal representation and so forth. And so he ends up, convicted. He overturns his first crime, the one that he was in the car with, but then he can't overturn the second one that he pled to. And he's in this awful mess of a puzzle and he cannot get his immigration status fixed. So they wanted to deport him. He had figured out, I guess through INS, yes, how to live within the confines of his situation until the Trump administration decided to clamp down on immigrants who had criminal records. And this was a big issue for Trump. He campaigned on it. And it turns out that Ricky and thousands of other immigrants who end up in small situations of 
criminal activity because they don't understand the law, they don't have licenses, all different kinds of things. He mm-hmm. ended up swept up in this, swept up by ICE, put into a detention center. He actually was even on a plane to be deported. Oh. And this legal team got him pulled off the plane. But he never married. Everybody else in his family became U.S. citizens. But Ricky, because of this criminal record, couldn't. He's had one job, been an amazing employee. He does a lot of work for Cambodians. And he's just a good, quiet citizen doing his job. I love my job. I love going to the customer house and fixing the issue and seeing a smile on their face. Sometimes nobody even came and talked to me for years, so they're happy to see you. It makes me feel good when I help those people out. But he never allowed himself to have a full life because he's like, I could be deported at any point in my life. And then what? Um, And so he had a lot at stake. His story, because there's so many people fighting for him, and depending on what happens to Ricky in this case, it can actually help a lot of other Cambodians because there's a class action suit about the way they all got swept up. And so a lot of people are watching Ricky's case. It's very, very inspiring, again, to see it unfold. The Horton Brothers. Tell the folks about the Horton Brothers. There's Dennis and Lee Horton. Initially, I was not planning to do a clemency story for the pardons board because a lot of times those are really complicated cases, like they Mm -hmm. could be their own thing. But one of the things we decided was, okay, we were going to just cover interesting cases that happened December of 2020. And that was the the pardon board hearing that I really unpacked for my documentary. Mm -hmm. The Horton brothers had their hearing and suddenly I didn't know very much. I didn't know anything about their case actually. And Lieutenant governor starts actually crying during some of their hearing because he's advocating for them. And I'm like, what is going on with this case? Like, this is really different. And as we unpacked it, we learned that there are these two brothers. They have been claiming their innocence for 27 years. And it turns out that they were convicted of second degree murder. They also kind of like Ricky were just driving and picked up a friend and their story is they had no idea that he had murdered somebody an hour before. And we would just basically joyride, ride through the neighborhoods and decided to stop at his house. When he got into my car, the cops was actually following him. The cops pulled us over. They just took it like, okay, y'all are the guys. We always professed our innocence. We made some bad decisions and poor choices in the people that we allowed in our company. And so here we are today. We didn't murder anybody. And we were offered deals, but that would have meant going into court and lying. They claim to this day they know nothing about what happened. They do know the gentleman. They went to high school with him. I was shocked by this story. I also had learned that there's a familial problem with criminal justice. A lot of times boys and they'll follow, follow their father's tracks into prison And I started hearing about how many brothers that there are in prison too. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to understand who these two brothers were. And once we started to learn about them, it just seemed impossible. How did these two innocent men get convicted? It just, every person who has interacted with them going forward believes that they're innocent. And 
I also think they're innocent today after all the time mm -hmm. I've spent with them because of the remarkable things that they do and just their disposition and the way they have approached their 27 years of trying to fight for their innocence and the lack of anger that they also have, like it's remarkable. After a year of being frustrated by the process or two, they said, okay, well, let's figure out how to make a life of purpose in this prison system. And they started helping other men, other men who are having issues with their cases, dealing with anger. They became trained as counselors in the prisons. They were on cert teams. They helped people. I've talked to folks who worked in uh, mental health in the prison system with these guys. They've talked suicides down. They've talked down groups of men from like rioting in the prison. There's so many things Amazing they have done. Yeah. And these two brothers have been pivotal in keeping one prison, one of the most productive and transformational places because they've helped bring in programming to just change men and give them another opportunity to have a life of purpose. In the midst of this, they tried to plead their case, but they also didn't know what they were doing legally. And eventually somebody inside the prison system said, why don't you just try clemency? You might mm -hmm. be able to get out through clemency. They initially didn't want to do it because that usually means, okay, I'm, I've served well, but it also means I'm still guilty. And they still say, we're not guilty. We're not guilty. But they ended up having to go through a pardons process twice. Mm -hmm. And that's why the Lieutenant Governor, John Fetterman, was so emotional because he was stunned that the first time the board didn't approve it. And it really was hung up on issues of people not getting all their files and you know the attorney general hadn't seen the entire docket and he wasn't going to make a decision without reading everything and things like that had held up their decision again for a whole other year or so forth and he was frustrated by the process collectively these two men have lived more than 50 years in prison and haven't had a life and their whole family has been trying to get them out he was willing to die on the sword for them. He's like, I will lose my job. These men are innocent. And I was like, wow, I've never heard a politician do that, stand there and say, I believe that these two men are innocent and need to be free. They both have this sort of zen, positive quality about life that is just amazing to think that they had gone through that much prison time. That prison did not spoil them, did not ruin their essential good natures. Dennis is the older brother, and he does this spoken word thing. Crimson stains of what remain paint the sky sublime. Striations etched upon the winds of light record amber waves of time. Ebony hues of love imbued, and pale hearts to hate the night. All of the rest was left behind. They've written a number of plays about mm -hmm. reforming your life and the impact you make on victims. And their plays have been performed in prisons all across Pennsylvania. <laughs> like, the amount of things they have done in 27 years inside yeah. the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections is astounding. What's interesting, though, is even though they receive the pardon, they actually are still considered not innocent, proven innocent. So if they want to prove their innocence, they have to continue to fight their case. And so their story isn't over. But the process has gotten them to a point where they can live much fuller lives and be much more free in the outside world. 
exactly. These two men, after all these years of trying to get out, the only thing they want to do is help other people get out. They figured out who they are and what their purpose is in life. And it was a very painful journey. But now they know who they are. And every day, I still get a text from Dennis every single morning in my phone telling me what value I have, why I'm an important person in this earth, and to go and have a good day. And he does this for everybody. People like that don't really exist except for in the movies. But I met them through the Pennsylvania pardon process. Like, who would have ever imagined? I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about the production process itself. I noticed right away there's no narrator to this story, that you use graphics with words on the screen, not someone talking. There's a way that you can use words, text, poetry, and the spoken interview together, of course, mixed sometimes with music and so forth. And it's very powerful. I came from the world of writing a lot of narration. Mm -hmm. I worked for NBC News for many years, and I was trained to do that. But as I have cultivated my documentary filmmaking skills, this is the way I really prefer to do it, to really have everybody else's words tell the story and not my words. For my viewing of it, it causes you as the viewer to be engaged in a much more intense way than having somebody read words. You are becoming part of the process by reading those words and making that story happen for yourself. It's the power of the silence in that moment. You actually have to pay more attention. For this story, it seemed to really work. And we didn't want to get too lost in the weeds with what it was, but really stick to the heart of their story. And so this really helped us do that. How was the decision made to produce both a half-hour film version and a series of the five digital shorts? Initially, I was actually going to only do three pieces. And then I discovered the Horton Brothers story. So then we saw, wow, there's enough here for a half an hour. I think there could have been an hour. (laughs) You know, we could go on and on. But for WNET and the Chasing the Dream initiative, I've done another documentary in the past called Getting Off the Streets, where I spent six months with 10 homeless men who were trying to get off the streets. We ended up doing a very similar thing. We ended up profiling only four of them really closely ended up making five shorter pieces that will live on the digital platform. And then all together, we put it together as a documentary. If you watch one of these, if you like this one story, it will roll into the next person's pardon story. In a way it is, you can sort of binge watch it. I know you went to uh, Garden City High School. So you're a New Yorker at some point in your life. Yes, you, you went digging back through my, my past. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always tell people, and it's true, my journalism background sort of happened to me because I grew up in Iran. Oh. I came here at the age of 14. I am Iranian-American. My mother's American. My dad is Iranian. And it was the American hostage crisis going on when I arrived. And I got hooked as a teenager to watching Nightline and Ted Koppel reporting every day from my country. 
my mother used to work in the American embassy. So this was all very like close to me. Wow. Those people were friends of our family. And I got hooked on news and reporting and people telling people stories. And so I studied it. And after graduating college, Ithaca College, I ended up working at NBC News for 11 years. And from there, I started my independent filmmaking career. So it's been an amazing journey. I feel lucky every day I can tell people's stories. And I'm always amazed that I can find a new story I've never told before. Wonderful. So let's remind everybody where they can see The Power of a Pardon. The five episodes are going to be streamed every Tuesday beginning September 7th through October 5th at pbs.org slash chasing the dream and the half hour version coming up soon on the World Channel. And if you want to see it or you, you'd like to show it in your community, I think there's also local opportunities down the road to do that. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Jamila Paxima, who is the producer and director of The Power of a Pardon. Wonderful being with you and all the best to you going forward. Thank you, Tom. And thank you so much for watching and listening carefully to my story and seeing all those little magic moments. It was a gift to be able to tell these people's story. And I think it teaches me that when I interact with other people in the world, that most people deserve a second chance if they've done something that they regretted in life. Thanks to Maria Stoyan of Multi-Platform Initiatives and Chasing the Dream, to our audio engineer, Josh Broom, and to our executive producer, Dana McBride. And special thanks to Miriam Fishman for designing our new logo. And thank you for listening. Be sure to be with us again soon for another edition of WNET Up Next. You can share your questions and comments with us at upnext at WNET.org. And of course, do become a subscriber. WNET Up Next is a presentation of the Design On-Air Promotion and Fundraising Department of the WNET Group. I'm Tom Stewart.